Hello, world. On this episode of the Concrete Podcast, I got the opportunity to interview a man by the name of Sean Atwood. Sean is an author and activist based in the UK who is banned from America for life. In his early 20s, Sean was a stock market millionaire who had a side hustle selling ecstasy. Before he knew it, he was importing and distributing so much that he was in direct competition with the Gambino crime family. Until May 16, 2002, when a SWAT team raided his house, and before he knew it, he was facing a 200-year sentence. Sean has since written over a dozen books, he's been featured on an episode of Locked Up Abroad, and he published his content to his YouTube channel, which is linked below. I was floored by not only Sean's personal journey, but his extensive knowledge of the corruption and politics of the war on drugs, the U.S. prison system, and towards the end of this podcast, we dive deep into the life and death of Jeffrey Epstein, and Sean reveals what his research on the Epstein conspiracies has uncovered. Enjoy the show. Are you ready? Yeah. Cool. And you're in Florida, right? Yes, I'm in Florida. I'm in uh, okay. Tampa, Tampa area, Florida, like kind of the West Coast. When's the last okay. time you were in the United States? Um, I got deported in December 2007. December 2007. And you've been in London, correct, ever since? Yeah, I was up in the north of the country for my first year back, but I've been in London for about 10 years now. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Anyways, well, thank thank you for for doing this. Um, it's great to meet you and become familiar with your story. Um, if you could, just for just for the listeners out there who may not have heard of you or don't know about it, can you give me sort of a pre a brief backstory to who you are and where you came from? Yeah, my name's Sean Atwood, and I come from a little chemical manufacturing town. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In the north of England, the industrial part of the country, didn't grow up with much money, Got interested in the stock market as a kid. Started investing when I was 16. Doubled my money right away. And I'm telling all my friends in my little town, I'm going to go to America, make a million, fly you guys over. That was my dream. And that's what I did. Did a business studies degree at uni. Started out in the stock market, Wolf of Wall Street style. I was grossing half a million dollars a year commission in the stock market. I'm thinking, right, I'm in my 20s. They'll want to be coming in the office at six in the morning and, you know, call calling all day long. Or should I just start to make money from the party scene? And the, the UK rave scene had such a, a big impression on me when I was at uni, you know, just taking ecstasy, taking speed for my first time, dancing all night long, hugging people, telling each other our life stories. I thought, all right, when I make my money, I'm going to transfer that scene over to the Snoring Desert. So then I ended up throwing parties for up to 10,000 people at a time. Now, there's not much ecstasy out there, so I also set up an ecstasy operation. It was in competition with Sammy the Bull Gravano, whose guys, they ended up knocking the teeth out of my top salesperson. Fortunately, back then, I had the protection of the New Mexican Mafia, which is the most powerful mafia in Arizona at the time. 
So, you know, my ego was as big as the Grand Canyon. I'm the man now. I'm living like a character of a movie, throwing parties with 10,000 people, got my bouncers running around, people coming up to me all night long, thanking me for the pills. And, you know, so I was emotionally immature. Drugs had put a cloud in my head. I didn't know was there, scrambled my decision-making processes, I'd surrounded myself with equally insane people, and we were all just reinforcing each other's crazy behavior. And it got really dangerous, but when you're on drugs, the drugs is giving you false courage, and it's telling you you're cool, you're the man, you're living like a character of a movie. But once that cloud lifted out my head and I looked back in the prison, I was like, Jesus, how on earth are you still alive? Sammy the Bull's son told me uh, in prison, you know, he'd been dispatched one night to kidnap me from a nightclub and take me out to the desert. And the only reason those guys had missed us, an armed crew showed up at the crowbar, is because my best mate, one of my bouncers, huge guy called Wildman, he does a lot of videos on my channel, he's a maniac, um, he'd got in a situation and we'd had to leave that club in a hurry. So... Again, you know, the drugs are telling me this is cool, but that could, could have very easily ended up with me being taken out to the desert. Wow. Now, during all of this, this ecstasy dealing and, and running around, how old were you and, and how much money were you making at this time? Okay, so I started the stock market when I was 16, borrowed 50 pounds off my nan, which was about 70, 80 dollars back then and doubled it. And that was a big deal to me. When I got to America after business studies at uni, I arrived only with my student credit cards, didn't have a work visa, um, but I fully intended to conquer the world. I'm just out of uni. I've watched that movie, Wall Street, greed is good. And that was my motto. So nothing was going to stop me. Work visa wasn't even a consideration. I had a printing set ready and my aunt, um, who was, was mentoring me, let's say, back then. We were ready to print a visa uh, into my passport if necessary. So first couple of years, it was commission only. And I'm new to telesales. And I'm running out of money on my student credit cards, down to living off cheese on toast and bananas, worried I'm going to have to come home. But five years in, I'm the top guy in the office, grossing half a million a year, got my own secretary, um, cold callers, but I end up with enough money to retire. And that's what I did. I, and I stuck that into technology shares and they shot up during the dot-com bubble. And that's how I became a millionaire. So the sad thing is I didn't even need to be getting involved in the drugs, but it was all ego driven. I've written about Escobar and his brother said to him when he was worth billions, why don't we just buy our own Island, kick back? We won't get arrested. We won't get killed by rivals. And Escobar's like, I'm running this multi-billion dollar business. I decide who the president of Colombia is. I've got tens of thousands of people working for me. And you want me to kick back on some island, you know, in a deck chair, sipping a cocktail. They, what my point being is addiction to the lifestyle is more powerful than addiction to the drugs an addiction to the fast cash. You know, I was a shy, anxious student in this country before I went out there. I almost got beat to death by some drunks. When it was years later in therapy, I learned to go deep inside myself and address some of the root causes of what I'd done. 
And I was taking ecstasy and speed because I had social anxiety. People saw this wild and crazy party animal, but once I got off the drugs, I was, I, was, I was this reserved person again. So you asked about money, but it was more fueled by the mental addiction to being the man, living in a million dollar house on the side of a mountain, swimming pool, jacuzzi, you know, my wife, um, yeah, she, she'd uh, done her university stuff, but she was also doing lesbian internet porn. When you're a testosterone guy in your 20s, this is what you aspire to. But I see the error of my ways now, and I, I mostly go into schools and speak to kids and dissuade them from doing the crazy stuff I did. Wow. So you were already making millions of dollars before you even entered this drug world. Yes. I bought one shares in one company, a stock. It was called Pacific Satellite Nonsantra, an Indonesian uh, telecom con company. And I bought them around $5 a share in the late 1990s. And during the peak of the dot-com bubble, that one alone hit 50. And I had multiple positions like that in satellite and tech and telecoms. Wow. I'd, I'd wake up, turn my computer on, and I'd be up some days like 100 grand. <laughs> yeah. That's unbelievable. And that, this was yeah. all during the dot-com bubble, like you said? During the dot-com bubble, yeah. So once you got into dealing ecstasy and, and making lots more money dealing ecstasy, um, you said you were getting it from Holland, is that correct? Okay, so in the beginning... I was just throwing house parties and showing up and buying drugs and giving it away for free. And that was when I was still working as a stockbroker. My best friend from childhood, Wildman, came over. And he just his, his place where he stayed just became a permanent party house. And it's through him I met a lot of the characters that became my business partners later on from various mafias. And... We realized we could only get 100 pills from the local dealers. And I'm twigging on now. I'm thinking, all right. Do I want to keep working in the stock market these long hours or should I apply my business studies knowledge to running an ecstasy importation business? In the beginning, I had to go to L.A., found out the local dealers were getting them out of L.A. First time I went out there, buy a thousand pills, whatever it was, I took Wildman. I took two crews. We had two cars and um, we're parked on the street in some area of Hollywood and we're waiting for this guy. He's not even home. So I'm thinking, you know, is this a setup? The police watching his house. This guy, am I going to go in with the money and he's going to rob me? I went in the house on my own when we saw him arrive and he was like a surfer gangster dude. And he had these characters with him like out of Point Break, that movie. Yeah. So I go in there and I'm, I'm shitting myself basically. I've never done anything at this level before. This is quite heavy for me at this point in my life. Um, I tell him I've got the money, where's the pills? He goes, all right, I'll go and get them. I'm thinking he's going to go back in a room, come out with a gun, just take my money off me. Could have been done as easy as that. But he comes out with the biggest bag of pills I've ever seen in my life. And I say, do you mind if I, t I try one first? Because I knew the taste of ecstasy. He says, do you want a drink? I said, no, I'm gonna, just going to chew it because I know what a good ecstasy tastes like. Chewed it. It tasted good. We did the deal. I'm just uh, dancing in my car all the way back to Arizona. And those pills through Wildman's apartment in Tempe, Arizona, all those pills went within a weekend. 
then I've realized, okay, ecstasy is a scarce commodity in Arizona. It's going for $25, $30 in the clubs right now. This is definitely something I could make money of and have fun. But because of that decision, I lost absolutely everything. So I built up an organization from the over 100 people arrested with me, but I had about over 200 working for me at the peak of it. And um, the LA guys could get you know up to 5,000 pills at a time. It just wasn't do- cutting it anymore because demand was so high. I've got this uh, vertically integrated operation now whereby I'm throwing raves. I've got a rave clothing music store. Got all this money laundering stuff going on. And um, so I I couldn't leave the country because I was an illegal alien. I got married um, three times, but never they never lasted long enough for me to get my green card. So I had to send people out to Holland with testing kits from a website called Dance Safe. So a good ecstasy pill, usually like a beige press, should be 100, 125 milligrams of MDMA and clay. Mm-hmm. And when you test it in this uh, kit, it, it changes this thing to like a purple uh, blue color. So, you know, I was also worried that if I'm bringing bulk pills back to the States, if there's some kind of toxic substance in them, you know, people could potentially die. So nobody ever died off the pills that we brought in. We would have known right away because we had the scene locked down for years until Sammy DeBull moved in. And I had a reputation for bringing in good quality pills. Now at the peak of it, um, the smugglers are bringing in like 30, 40,000 pills at a time. One woman smuggler, she was stopped in Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport and they were in vitamin containers, jars in her luggage. They took her in a room emptied the luggage out, searched through it, put the pills on the table. He said to her, what are they? She said, vitamins. And they were like, cool, put them back in the luggage and told us to have a nice day. So after that, oh my cons- God. after that, I consulted a lawyer and the lawyer said, stop bringing them in to America, bring them in through Mexico. So I invested in a beachfront condo in Puerto Penasco, Rocky Point, where the students from Arizona and California, they go down there and they party. So there's a lot of people coming and going during certain times of the year to bring loads over the border, the Arizona border. And um, my smugglers would fly from Hermosillo Airport over to Mexico City. They'd get Air France over to Paris, and then they'd jump on a train, you know, through uh, over to Holland. So jumping on a, on a plane from Holland back to the States, you, you're going to get busted very easily doing that. And this was before 9-11, so nobody please try this now. Um, you know, you could, you could when, when you were on your actual flight back to Mexico, you could have people literally sometimes had the pills just in pillowcases in their luggage. If you wanted to be more secure, you could have them screwed into computer towers and, and bring computer towers back instead. Um, and then once they got to Hermosillo, the pills would be transferred when they were smuggled back down to Rocky Point over to other people in case the original smugglers had been detected in any way. And the, this secondary group of people would be down there in like nice SUVs with ASU, uh, University of Arizona, Arizona State University stickers on them, diving tanks, tourist bric-a-brac. And, you know, when you got to the border... And I was 
like I said, I was a legal alien, but I was confident enough to just go down to Mexico then because they didn't ask you for ID. They just asked if you were a U.S. citizen. And if you're white, then you just get through, basically. So that's what happened. I smuggled numerous people in from England who had been deported. Wild man got deported three times for being a menace to society. I just had people smuggling him back in through Mexico. So it was quite easy for us to cross the border. And nobody ever got busted bringing pills across the Arizona border in from Mexico. Wow. Now, how how did you get involved with the... Is it called the New Mexican Mafia? Yeah, the, the New, New Mex Mexican so, Mafia. So, so how did you get involved with the New Mexican Mafia? And for those who don't know, who, what is the New Mexican Mafia? Okay. There's a movie called American Me, American Me, about La Eme. So these are gangs that come out of the prison system. And... You know, you've heard of the Aryan Brotherhood, how that came out of the California prison system. Right. A lot of these gangs originate in the California prison system and it spreads throughout the country. Okay. So, you know, there's a California, La MA, and then the, 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 they branched out and there was a Arizona, La MA. And these are Chicanos, Mexican Americans, not like the original Mexican mafia, like the cartels out of Mexico. And some people do confuse that. Okay. Now, now I mentioned that Wildman was opening the door to a lot of relationships with gangsters because he's just so loud. And wherever he goes, he attracts this eclectic group of people in these apartments. He's got like, um, transvestite native Americans, uh, in one corner, Russian mafia over here, um, Chicano gang members over here, gangbangers over here, street prostitutes. It's just this eclectic mix. People, everyone's on ecstasy and everyone's getting along and telling each other the life stories and shit. It's, it's crazy. So anyway, we were at an, an apartment party in a complex in Tempe called Rancho Murrieta. This was a huge complex. So we had multiple apartments in there where we could party at, where we could store ecstasy, where we could do deals out of, etc., And we were in one of those apartments and everyone was just chilling out, people smoking weed, listening to rave music, people on ecstasy, having a good time. I'm there to supply the ecstasy and this Mexican-American guy comes in and um, he's supplying the weed and the coke. And because we're the suppliers, we hit it off and we start talking. So a policeman walks in a Tempe policeman, and he goes, I could smell weed from outside, nobody move. And the guy I'm speaking to just pulls out a gun, points at the cop, goes, the only one who's not leaving is you, motherfucker. Everybody run. So we all run off into the night. Now, I've never seen anything this heavy before, so I'm crapping myself. I go to one of the nearest apartments where we've got people in there selling pills for us. And we're hearing the sirens, we're hearing the helicopter come in and we're all like, shit, what we're gonna do? Should we flush our pills or what? We're, we're gonna get busted. But there was also like so many people at that apartment party, we were hoping that the cop kind of wouldn't recognize us, maybe if we got rounded up. So while we're debating whether to flush our stuff, all of a sudden, French window, 
bang, 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 bang. Is it the cops or what? We're like, oh, shit. So we look through the window, and it's the Mexican-American guy. And he's like, let me in, let me in. So he, he schooled us right away. He said, look, turn the lights off, turn the TV off. You don't need to flush your drugs. They're not going to get in. They don't have a warrant. They can't get a warrant that quick. There's too many apartments. They knock on the door. Just don't answer it. Um, yeah, we were all like thinking he's full of shit. They're probably going to just knock the door down any second. But it did pass. It did pass. They came and knocked, and they went on and knocked next door, and they went on their way. So we have a tense situation in this place. We're laying low. And at the end of the night, he says, look, because you and your friends protected me, me and my brothers have got your back. And I had no idea what that meant. So a few months later, he says, my, one of my brothers wants to meet you. I go over to the street. There's all these lowrider showcase cars on the road. Goes to the door. His brother answers the door. He's got no hurt, and he's just looking at me, scrunching his face. You know, he's this, he's this pale, skinny English guy at his door all of a sudden. That's, I imagine that's what he's thinking. I got talking, and then he starts um, buzzing off my accent. He's like, damn, you talk funny. I guess you are from England. Come in and meet my homies. They got the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life. They got a little TV showing the, all the comings and goings on the street outside. In case the cops are coming, they're going to know in advance. And then I did a double take because on top of the TV, I'm like, all right, I've seen one of them before. Hold on a minute. Yeah, it was in a Rambo movie. They got a rocket propelled grenade launch on top of the TV. Yeah. So I knew, I knew they were lethal people. I didn't fully understand that... They were the New Mexican Mafia until it was years later when they were on the news. And I go over to the brother's house. I'm dropping the Mexican-American guy off, and the whole neighborhood is blacked out. And the, the police are out with light ones guiding the traffic. And they're all bringing, being brought out in, by the feds in a SWAT team. And it was news headlines that night, New Mexican Mafia, most powerful Mafia in Arizona at the time um, killed witnesses, trying to kill police, trying to kill the head of the Department of Corrections. And I, I would have got caught in that raid, basically, if I'd been there a, bit, a little bit earlier. So, yeah, that's how I knew they were the guys who had my back. Wow. That's that's pretty incredible, the fact that you were mixed up with those guys. And, and at what point, where were you when you saw all this going down? Were you Had you already been locked up at that point or... Were you, where were you at that point? I started getting the ecstasy out of LA mm -hmm. in the 1990s, around 96, 97. Mm -hmm. By 98, 99, the people are bringing the ecstasy over from Holland. Sammy the Bull, he got SWAT team raided and arrested a year or two before me. I got arrested on may 16 2002 can you explain to me what it was like the day you finally got busted i'd met a woman fall in love and she talked me out of the importation and i thought i'd got away with it i was naive to the statute of limitations whereby 
the cops don't need to catch you with drugs. All it takes is someone from your past within a seven-year period to tell them they've done a transaction with you. So 10 witness statements were given to the police. I've enrolled in college. I'm studying Spanish. I'm, st I'm trading the stock market online. Wake up early for the stock market open. And all of a sudden, bam, 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 on the door. 10p, please, we've got a warrant. So I jump up, look out the people, it's blacked out. I'm wondering, all right, are these people pretending to be the police, found out where I live, just trying to rob me, or are they really the cops? So I run to the front window, peep out, and the whole building is surrounded. Police marksmen, police vehicles, more cops come stomping up the stairs. Girlfriends in the bedroom, I go through. We're like, all right, we better let them in. So we get halfway through the living room, then just boom. Door just flies off the hinges. Hands above your heads. Get on the ground now. Don't move. So there was a detective that I've called Detective Reed in my book, Party Time. And he just hoists me up by the cuffs. And he's like, English Sean. You're a big name from the rave scene. I know this raid is going to justify the charges. You know, we've been after you for years. Basically, gotcha, you know. So I'm still in this naive state of mind thinking, all right, yeah, raid my house. Here's the combo for the safe. There isn't any drugs in here. Thinking they find no drugs, they got to release me. But once we got to the, after we went through the 10P jail process, we went over to the county jail to Sheriff Joe Arpaio's notorious jail system. And the intake was called a horseshoe, a horseshoe formation of cells that you go through. You're in there for days. Subterranean, you don't know if it's day or night, other than the heat rising and falling against the walls. Um, during the going through the horseshoe, you get your paperwork, so you go to a little counter, there's a woman behind it, and she gave me my charges, and she gave me my bail bond, and that was $750,000 cash only on one charge alone, which was conspiracy, which I didn't understand at the time. How old were you? Um, I think I was about 32, 33. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So in the horseshoe, me and my co-defendants are all nonplussed about what they're actually going to charge us for and what evidence they've got. You see a judge and you plead your case and he was having none of it with us. And then at the end of the horseshoe, you get your classification and they send you to a, a cell in a county jail. So most of the co-defendants were assigned to minimum security and in the beginning, me and Wildman were assigned to medium security. So there's quite a few ended up in medium security. But I was housed separately from them because of the nature of the case. They didn't want me being around my co-defendants, influencing them, them and stuff like that. So by the time I get to Towers Jail, I know nobody in there. And the Aryan Brotherhood skinhead guys are just running wild. And they come up to me right away and they're like, hey, we want a word with you. Get in that cell over there. You can't say no to these guys or they're just going to smash your head into the wall. 
So I go in the cell, they close the door behind me, biggest one gets in my face. What are your charges? What are your charges? Charges on a printout from the jail. It's all legal terminology. Like I said, I'm new to this game and I don't understand what it means. So I give the, the crappiest answer in the world. I don't know what my charges mean. <laughs> they did not like that one bit. Now they're going against the wall like, what do you mean you don't know what your charges mean? Are you a chomo? Are you a chomo? I don't even know what chomo is. Right. So um, in the end, because Na- National Geographic did a documentary about my story um, on Locked Up Abroad, Raving Arizona. But what they didn't show was in the end, in, in that scene, I pulled out my charge sheet. They want to see your paperwork. They saw I was in for drugs. That's acceptable. Nearly everyone is in drug in, in prison is drug related. They saw my bail bond was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars cash only. They loved that. Whoa. They were like, "God damn, who'd you kill? You guys, the mafia or what?" And I'm like, "No, just raves, ecstasy, blah blah blah." You know, you, you shouldn't really talk about your case um, when you're going to jail. I give that out on prison survival advice videos now, but I I, I had no clue on day one and I was fearing for my life that these guys were going to attack me. At what point was the roaches? When was the roaches and the, and the sweaty and the, and the skin like falling off? Like, cause it was so soggy. All right. I spent an extremely long time fighting my case. I got the lawyer that the new Mexican mafia guys recommended to me. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't cooperating cause I wouldn't sign a plea bargain. The prosecutor pulled out every dirty trick in the book, including criminalizing my girlfriend so she couldn't visit me. So as it's going along, I'm also in court. When we go court, all my co-defendants, I get to meet them. So me and Wildman, you know, we're like, all right, we've got a united front now. My lawyer is the lead lawyer. Nobody needs to cooperate. Don't sign this thing called Exhibit A. They were giving everyone saying you work for Sean Atwood in the Atwood Enterprise. And it was just really pissing the prosecutor off. Because in Sammy the Bull's case, I think 57 people were arrested with him. And they all cooperated quite quickly. Now, I'd built like a a, a tight crime family kind of thing. Not a mafia crime family, a rave crime family, you know. We're talking cuddle puddles and Vicks inhalers. not Joe Pesci style, you know, killing people in, in the boots of cars like that. Right. Um, but we were all a very tight knit family of misfits that had come together in this community. So only four people cooperated in my entire case, which was phenomenal. Wow. So the, pros- the prosecutor was frantic. My lawyer saying they've got a flimsy case. They missed the boat. They don't have any drug evidence against you. It's just the testimony of these people. Uncle speaks on my behalf. He's ex-cop thinking, wow, this is going great. Prosecutor, she sabotages the hearing. The judge doubles my bond to $1.5 million cash only. Now, when your bond goes over a mil, you're automatically reclassified from medium security over to maximum security, which was mostly murderers. And I ended up in a cellmate with a crystal meth chemist. So go over to max. Two in the morning. I've been in like prison transportation all day, sitting in holding cells and whatnot, pretty tired. And I get to the cell in the Madison Street Jail, walk in, and it's a two man cell, and I see my cellmate asleep. 
on the top bunk at the back. I'm thinking, that's a bit weird. wonder why he's not on the bottom bunk, because where I come from, people fight over the bottom bunk. So I was thinking something's not quite right. Walking a little bit more, something drops off the ceiling and bounces off my shoulder. I'm like, what was that? And I'm looking around at the walls and the ceiling. And I can see this strange movement, like a swirl effect. I think my eyes are playing tricks. I'm tripping. So I put my face right up to the wall to see what was going on. And it was absolutely covered in American cockroaches. About the size of an almond nut. And they were just coming out of holes in the wall. The bunk where I was supposed to sleep at, there was like these brackets attached to the wall. And they were just pouring out inches away from the bunk. And I'm thinking, you know, I've got used to the violence by now, but how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to get to sleep? So I'm noticing my cellmate, he's, he's got like this cocoon around him, this, this white sheet and a breathing hole. So he looks like the mummy. So I got on the bunk, wrapped myself up in the sheet. But this is the Sonoran Desert. It's almost like 120, 130 degrees on your scale, almost right. 50 degrees on our scale. And if you wrap yourself up in a sheet, it traps that hot air to your body. And you've already got all these bleeding and itching skin infections and bed sores because there's hardly any air coming into the cell. It's like a swamp cooler. But the only time it worked was when the county health inspector walked through the building. So you're so itchy and your skin's so soggy, though, from sweating, scratch yourself clumps of your own skin comes off under your nails so you're compressed in this the sheet around you and all this sweat's just driving you insane and in the end you're like ah you just throw the sheet off just let them crawl on you now fortunately they don't bite they start out tickling your feet your limbs to this day if anyone tickles my hands i flinch because i woke up so many nights i'm tickling my hands get on your face mouth nose but the favorite place of all is going in your ears to eat your earwax. It's like honey to them. I mean, I would rip a piece of towel and make a little cloth to wash my face. And sometimes I'd dig in my ears and get the earwax out and I'd put it somewhere to dry. And the cockroaches would get on the flannel and they'd be like pulsing on the earwax, just sucking the earwax up. So that was their special treat. Now, this was constant eight at night was locked down. All the prisoners go back to the cells. Guards lock the doors. You, you shut in the Ten lights out. Just before the lights go out, the cockroaches line up in the cracks in the wall, doing this movement with that antennae sticking out, like an army waiting to invade. Then as soon as the lights go out, that's it. They just flood the room. So over time, you know, you got all these fungal uh, infections on your skin. And so over time, you just accept that they're going to crawl on you. Uh, I woke up, you know, constantly uh, with them tickling me, going on my face, on my mouth. And um, you, you, you kind of, in, in the end, you're rebelling against it and you're going days and days without sleep. And they had to put me on some medication. But you learn to be at peace with your cellmates, whether they are humans or insects in the long run. Otherwise, you're going to do yourself in psychologically. So I learned all of the characteristics. 
if you start like slapping a sandal down on one, it releases a chemical smell, and these warrior ones come running under your cell door. If um, they manage to lay the eggs, which are in a piece of a worm, it looks like a piece of a worm, and they'll attach that under your bunk or they'll attach that to one of your books. If you don't notice it and that thing bursts open and all those little ones come out, they're all over the place as well then. Some prisoners were doing cockroach races, gambling on the winner. If you try and drown them, they just pretend that they're drowned. They pull, they get into this position, but they're actually holding oxygen to themselves. They're just crafty little bastards. I saw white ones look like albino ones. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd just watch them in the end and just, just laugh at them. And I would cement the toothpaste cement all the cracks in the walls. I remember one time I cemented my whole cell and I was so proud of myself. The, the smell smelled minty fresh. <laughs> they had this. Sheriff Joel Pyle gave us this toothpaste called Amurafresh. And, and years later, it was I think he was buying it from China or something. Years later, there was like, it was learned there was like antifreeze in it and all this kind of shit. Oh <laughs> yeah, my yeah, God. Yeah. yeah. So that night that I sealed the whole cell up and I was at peace, the guards come, roll up outward, we're moving you to another cell. And I didn't have any, I didn't have any toothpaste left. And that cell was just even worse with the cockroaches from the cell that I'd left. Uh, you know, I tried to meditate at night I, in my black and white striped trousers, pants. I took them into my pink shorts, sit on some books, get in the position. And I've got my trousers tucked into my socks so that they can't, you know, start crawling up my legs. I'm just just a few inches away from the wall and they're all over the wall behind me. But when you're asleep, when you're trying to sleep on that bunk, the bunk is like inches away from the wall. So they're just there right in front of your face all night long. So I was in that maximum security facility for another year after my first year. Spent my whole second year, 20 um, and two months, a year and two months in the maximum security Madison Street Jail, uh, which was, you know, completely cockroach infested. So I had to learn to harmonize with the insects. And this was uh, in Arizona still. Oh yeah, all all my time was done in Arizona. Yeah, I was. It was a state. It was a state offense. The feds dropped it. Now you talk a lot about a guy named Two Tonys. Yeah. Is that where you met him? No, I met him okay. in the prison in the prison system. Okay. So so jail is where you are on remand, which means in America that you're unsentenced. So. It's very transitory environment. All the new arrestees are coming in and out. People have been beat up by the cops in gunfights. People are high. People are drunk. And it's just bedlam. And they've got these cells that are supposed to hold one person, but they go up to four people in each cell. So all the buildings are like three to four times the amount of people that should be in them. So it's just mayhem. And then, like I said in the previous videos, uh, the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang decides who lives and dies in the white race. All the gangs just running the drugs through the jail. That's how they make their cash. That guy, Two Tonys, how, how did you end up meeting him? And what kind of effect did he have on your stay or your life afterwards? Okay, so when I had finished my own sentence period and I got sentenced to nine and a half years, 
Because I hadn't cooperated with the prosecutor, she'd done a number of tricks on me throughout my remand, like stopping my girlfriend from visiting me. But a final farewell was she accidentally put my nine and a half year sentence down as 34 years. So I was fast tracked to Supermax then for about three or four months where I wasn't supposed to be until they fixed that. After that, I got sentenced to medium security, hoping that they would be softer than you know, Supermax and these other places that come from Max in uh, the jail. But I end up in a cell with a serial home invader torturer. This guy was breaking to people's houses, tying them up with duct tape and taking hammers to their kneecaps. And his welcome statement to me, I've got a padlock in a sock, could smash your brains in while you sleep, can kill you whenever you want. So he didn't like me from the get-go. He was an old con. He looked at me as a fresh fish. He just was running a tattoo shop, a legal tattoo shop out the cell and just, you know, doing the heroin all day. And I'm, I'm in there, you know, I've got an education, a bit of a nerdy guy. So he, he didn't he didn't like that at all. So he got his mate, who was a huge um, guy, to attack me when my parents had flown 5,000 miles to visit me for Christmas. Prisons like high school mentality with deadly consequences. The two the two things prisoners look forward to the most are visits and mail. So he knew by spoiling that visit, you know, that would be devastating for me. So I'm on the way to the visit. Big guy just chicken shit move, sneaks up behind me, bam, bam, starts kidney punching. All the prisoners stop to see my reaction because gang rule is you must hit back or else you're a punk. Everyone's going to prey on you. If you don't hit back, um, bad consequences with the prisoners but if you do hit back and the guards see it then you're arrested sent to a prison within the prison, locked down lose all your privileges including your visits and they can add more time onto your sentence if you don't hit back you become a prison punk you're going to spend the rest of your time inside cleaning people's toilets, performing sexual services and getting rented out as a prison prostitute so what <laughs> are you doing in that situation you've got to throw the kicks and punches but th this guy was so big and, and Strong, it was like hitting a big bag of cement. It didn't end up well for me. He knocked me down, smashed me up, and I ended up going to the visit all injured. Now, I did manage to get moved out of that cell. And my new cellmate, Long Island, he'd come from a prison where his neighbor had said, if you come in, into contact with an English guy, English Sean, he's a good dude, I did business with him on the streets. This is a guy called Gangster Dan from Philadelphia. Um, he had like his thumb missing and shit so Long Island ends up my cellmate and the chances of that I mean there's 60,000 people in the prison system at that point in time prisons all over Arizona as they've expanded with the private prisons so as, as much as people came out the blue to harm me people came out the blue to help me now Long Island he caught wind of the beef I'd had with my previous cellmate he was still sweating me a bit throwing batteries at me and shit and um, so he decided to introduce me to someone who could protect me. And that was two Tonys because he knew that if I clicked up with him, I might, you know, it, it would help me on the yard. So he didn't tell me that. He said, look, I want you to have a game of chess with my friend, two Tonys. Uh, all right, cool. What's he in for? He's a multiple homicide murderer. He's doing 141 years. He left the dead bodies of rivals from Arizona to Alaska. He's old school Italian mafia, never harm women or kids. 
So if you've only murdered rival gangsters, you're top of the respect in the prison. Now, two Tonys worked for the Bonanno crime family under Joe Bonanno Sr. Joe Bonanno Sr. was one of the longest running ever heads of the Mafia Council. And yeah, he did eventually get run out of New York and ended up in Tucson, Arizona. But he, had, he died of natural causes. So he was quite a shrewd individual. And two Tonys was taught by Charlie Bat Battaglia, which was a Bonanno lieutenant, how to whack people and dispose of the bodies and not get caught. Because Charlie Bat Battaglia had whacked people from coast to coast and he hadn't got caught. Now, before I could stop Long Island going to get two Tonys, because I'm like shitting it now, thinking, all right, what if I beat him at chess? Maybe he's going to not. Maybe I'll be next on his hit list. But before I could stop him, he just took off. So I'm stood in the day room, crapping myself. But two Tonys, he's, he's done a lot of time right now, like 20-something years, maybe 30-something years. He comes down the stairs like Uncle Junior at The Sopranos. And then in a fake British accent, he put he saw he sees I'm nervous and he puts me at ease. He goes, Have you ever had bloody tea and crumpets with the Beatles? <laughs> bloody so put, bloody tea and crumpets. Yeah. So I played chess with him. I beat him quite fast. And at the end of the game, he said, Uh-oh. How come you beat me so fast? I said, because you kept speaking your mind throughout the game. You wouldn't show someone your hand in a game of cards, would you? And he slaps his head and he goes, Oh, me and my big mouth. I didn't know it, but he was testing me. Long Island had told him I was a writer and I had a blog, John's Jail Journal. And two Tonys was looking for someone to write his life story. Mm. So, so he said, look, Sean, to stay alive on the road of life, I've had to become a quick judge of character. I like you. I think you're an honest guy. Would you be willing to write my life story? I said, yeah, I would be honored. Now, I wasn't supposed to go in his cell, but Self-visiting is prohibited, but he had people stationed outside watching for guards. And I'm in his cell now for months on end, every single day, writing his life story down as a book. And um, by the end of it, he said that he felt like I was the son that he never had. And when we were at the fence saying goodbye, just as I was about to get released, by that time I was in minimum security, he came to the fence to say goodbye. Both of our eyes were misting over. We, we, we had that such a powerful bond. Now, sadly, two Tonys died in 2010 from liver cancer from his own drug taking. So he didn't get to see the publication of his book, which is called The Mafia Philosopher, Two Tonys, which is available worldwide on Amazon if anybody wants to check that out. Yeah. Wow. You also wrote a book kind of that, ex- that explains, I think we talked earlier about... Um, how most of the people were in there for drug related crimes. Is that right? Yeah. And you have a strong opinion on a book that you wrote, or there's a book that you wrote that kind of covers the war on drugs. I have a war on drugs series of books. Okay. The first, the first I use, I tried to use the most gripping stories to get the message across. Right. First one was Pablo Escobar beyond narcos. Then American Maid, Who Killed Barry Seal, Pablo Escobar or George H.W. Bush. Then the Cali Cartel. And then the one that was just released for Christmas is um, Clinton, Bush and CIA conspiracies from the boys on the tracks of Jeffrey Epstein. And all those are available on Amazon. Wow. Now, what is your, I guess, 
just for the sake of time, what, what is your like, um, hundred mile up perspective, wide view of the war on drugs, I guess, not only in the world, but in the U S it's the war on the poor. It's the war on people of color. It's the war on people who are addicted to drugs. It's the war on soldiers who are coming back with PTSD. Before I got arrested, I thought prisoners lock them up, throw away the key. The pedophiles, murderers, rapists. Because the media, all they do is report extreme crimes on one side and say how easy it is to got PlayStations, gourmet food luxuries on the other. But when I got in there at the peak of the war on drugs, I saw the average arrest was a black kid or a Mexican kid with a bit of weed getting like a two to five year sentence. Prison is the biggest house of the mentally ill. Third of them couldn't even read all right. So to fill the private prisons, they mass incarcerated low level drug users because the prisons got $50,000 of taxpayers' money per year per prisoner. And the dominant drug that they mass incarcerated people for was weed. Wow. All, almost a million arrests a year for weed, not dealers. Dealers are hard to catch versus users, weed possession. So because of this, America's got one in 100 adults in prison, 25% of the world's prison population. For adult black men, it's one in 20-something. I just watched that movie, Just Mercy. If people want to understand what's really going on in the, in the prison system, I, I urge people to watch that movie about the racism. And the lawyers, the jail is a conveyor belt to the prison system. They don't want you to go to trial. If everyone went to trial, it would, it would bankrupt the system. They scur the shit out of you. These prosecutors that let used car salespeople sign here, take 10 years, I'll go to trial and get 100. And you, people don't want to risk it. Even innocent people, right. like Khalif, like the story of Khalif, he was like, I haven't done, I didn't steal a backpack. I ain't signing, if, you, if anyone's watched that on Netflix. And they said, we'll let you out tomorrow, just sign. Sign your guilt. We must be justified in spending taxpayers' money on this bullshit. Right. That's all it is. The, ta the government has a, a feeding trough of taxpayers' money, trillions, if not, you know, billions, trillions of dollars. And to spend that on the prisons, they have to keep the public terrified that, you know, serial killers are, are running wild and we've got to keep locking people up at all costs. And if your kid is smoking marijuana, he's going to grab an axe and kill his granny. Right. Yeah, but people are sick of it. People are wising up left and right. There's all kinds on Netflix, and there's all kinds of activism going on 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 the uh, internet. What what was the um what was the name of the movie that you recommended just now? Uh, or any kind just, of shows that are on Netflix or any books? Okay, on Netflix, the story of Caliph. Um, just Mer uh, Mercy is the movie. If you want to see, I've written a book called Unmaking a Murderer about the ten ways prosecutors and detectives framed. Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey from making a murder because being on, on uncensored for 26 months, I saw all the tricks to prosecutors pull on people to, to, to get to set them up, create emotional reactions, procure false witnesses, pay expert witnesses to lie. My lawyer got Ray Crone, the, the snaggletooth killer off death row. State of Arizona paid $50,000 to set, make an expert witness say his teeth match the teeth on the bite mark of a deceased person when they knew it didn't. And the, the DNA didn't match, so they suppressed it. And they found him guilty because they gave him $5,000 to defend himself. The U.S. justice system is corrupt to the core, and it's been taken over by vested interests. There's a saying in prison, you know, 
a jury would indict a, a ham sandwich because the state has got all the best, the most money in the world to put on the best theatre show. Give someone $5,000 to defend themselves, they can't put on a theatre show, and court's just theatre. Do you see any possibility of this changing in the future, whether it be near or far? Um, and if so, how do you see that changing? I know there's countries, other countries like um, Portugal that have figured out ways to kind of curb this problem. What is a politician? Someone who just wants to get votes whatever way the wind is blowing. So look at the Clintons. They locked up more nonviolent drug offenders, including a record amount of women, for doing the exact same offenses that Bill Clinton was doing. I mean, Bill Clinton, his brother Roger got arrested in a drug deal. He said he was buying some of it for Bill because he's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner. Yet, yet, yet these hypocritical bastards lock up hundreds of thousands of people, criminalizing young people, ruining their lives. Half of my friends in prison were, were veteran soldiers come back from wars that they've been duped into by Bush and Clinton, and then they don't, don't get any help. They get PTSD, and they end up on street drugs. But when Hillary was up for the last election, she was spouting off about mass incarceration and how terrible it was for you know the black people and the women. So when you've got evil psychopaths in power, and I believe it's only the psychopaths that can rise to the top of politics. Right. They're the biggest crooks in the world. The people have got to put the pressure because they're scared of the votes. And it's the people voting at the state level that has decriminalized and legalized weed and is causing this reversal worldwide. Because it was America that introduced all these laws to the entire world. The earliest cannabis laws were pharmaceutical societies in California. They wanted it illegal because they didn't want people growing free medicine in their own backyards. Then at the federal level, Harry Anslinger came in. He was working for Andrew Mellon and all these other interests, fledgling petrochemicals, pharma, plastics. And he demonized it and said, you know, Black men on, on marijuana will want to rape every white woman in sight. Went to the United Nations and said to the entire world, if you don't sign on for America's drug laws, America's not going to trade with you. So that's why the whole world has got all this violence right now. Everything from knife crime in London to all these people dying in Mexico. That is to do with drugs being illegal and criminals competing for that black market profit. Because by making drugs illegal, they made worthless plants more valuable than gold. Weed was called weed because it grew at the sides of roads. Pablo Escobar could get coca paste for $60 a kilo, and because of drug laws, he could sell it for 60000 a kilo on the streets of America when he was getting started in the 70s. So drug laws have created the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for the cartels. And the politicians know this because they saw the same thing happen with alcohol prohibition. Right. Al Capone's running around with his machine guns. People are getting slaughtered. People are getting corrupted. But they've, they've not stopped it with drugs because they've learned to profit from it. The contracts are in the tens of billions a year for the private prisons. And that's just one entity, parasitical entity. There are hundreds of them, everything from razor wire to telephone services. Three strikes law in California. 
three crimes and you're serving life. They had people doing life for stealing pizzas and chocolate chip cookies. 25 years times $50,000, $1.25 million for ten, a $10 pizza. So the California taxpayers were like, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. They tried to get it reversed. And when they tried to get it reversed, the wall of money rose up and stopped it. And the two principal sources were the Prison Guards Union of California, which had paid the governor off, I think it was like a million, to get three strikes introduced in the first place. And one of the founders of Broadcom, exclusive provider of telephone services to the California state prison system. Wow. That is a, that is a heap that you just dropped. That the, is US, the US justice system... U.S. justice system is one of the biggest employers in the world. If they legalized drugs, it would whack the U.S. economy because all those courts would be empty. All those jail cells would be empty. All those people in those bumpkin towns who are working as prison guards would be unemployed again. It would slam the economy so hard. These vested interests just keep it going. I mean, I'm sure you keep up with it, but as far as the next presidential election in the U.S., who who do you like if you were living in the U.S. and you were a U.S. citizen? Uh, who do you like that that's running so far? If there's okay, so so I view all people at the top of politics as absolute psychopaths. Okay, and I'm an observer of politics. I don't participate. I've never voted. I am, you know, interested in the different characters that rise to the top, and I have extensively researched the Bush crime family and the Clinton crime families. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how you know I, I came to these conclusions and, and came to write this War on Drugs series of books. So I've not researched Trump that much, but we're seeing a rise of populism worldwide. In the UK here, the people voted for Brexit. That was part of that. I do talks across the country. I go in these small towns and I hear the people who are pro-Brexit. And it's, it's crazy because the Conservative Party here got that vote and they typically don't because they're typically what the wealthy people vote for but because the working a lot of the working class people were pro-brexit they voted for the conservative party so the conservative party has learned how to harness the votes of the poor people but it's that it's that rise of populism if you can ride that if you can attach onto that right now you will win your the election because that's happening worldwide and you know i read uh, over a thousand books in prison in just under six years, a lot of history, philosophy, psychology. And if you go back to the 1900s, exactly the same thing happened and it was a precursor for the world wars. So also related to this, you have become quite, you've become an expert in the life of Jeffrey Epstein and the crimes of Jeffrey Epstein. And you've released on your channel, I believe it's over a hundred videos related to Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. How did you get so fascinated by the story of this man? And can you elaborate a little bit more um, about the, the stuff peop- you published on him? The people who watch and subscribe to my channel and post con- comments and contact me through email, social media, they completely steer what I do. Everything that's done has been at their suggestions. So I've got a prison questions playlist on the channel. Okay. And when, when Epstein got arrested... Uh, people just started sending me messages, what will happen to Epstein. I did a video titled, Will Bill Clinton 
have Epstein murdered in prison to avoid Lolita scandal. And that was just based on all my research I've done into the Clinton crime family. And when, when did you release that video? Weeks be um, after he got arrested and weeks before he got suicided. So when he did get suicided, my channel kind of became this go-to channel for Epstein news and people just kept sending in more questions. Someone so sent me the unredacted black book quite quickly before it was in circulation. So I just got on the phone and just started calling people up, like, you know, trying to call people like Mick Jagger and all these people. That were like, <laughs> so that, that it, it all went crazy viral. Um, some of those videos got like a, almost a million views and stuff. Whoa. So then I just started, it got to the point where I had to just do a daily Epstein video. At one point I was doing two Epstein videos a day. And there's, there's like enough now for about two books. I think I'm going to do Who Killed Epstein Part 1 and Part 2. I, I noticed one of the videos that you published I was looking at. I don't know if it was a, one of the most recent ones or if it was one of the ones in the beginning. But you were talking about how Epstein was friends with Elon Musk and worked with Tesla somehow in some capacity. Yeah. When Elon Musk tweeted that Tesla was going to get bought out and he knew that it wasn't but he'd been having some dealings with Epstein and Epstein was hooked up with a Saudi prince so there was a pipe dream hope that that was going to happen and Musk absolutely should not have done that tweet because it goes against all of the security laws right right you can't as a, as a former stockbroker I had to do all these different exams and get my licenses and stuff to learn all that stuff so Tesla price shut up, but then it went right back down, and Musk got this huge fine. And he was being advised by Epstein around that time. Yeah. So I guess let's go back um, a, a little bit and talk about uh, Epstein for people who aren't necessarily privy on all the details of the case and, and, and all, not necessarily that case, but all the details of his history. Um, with the the sex trafficking um, and the organizations he was involved with, could you give me sort of kind of like a description of of our backstory of what that is? Yeah, Epstein started to go out with Ghislaine Maxwell, who is the daughter of Robert Maxwell, and it was Robert Maxwell that brought Epstein into the Mossad fold because Maxwell. He built this multi-billion dollar criminal enterprise whereby he was, you know, he could sit down with George Bush, he could sit down with Gorbachev, but he was also laundering money for all of the different mafias around the world, the Russian mafia, um, the cartels, the Colombians, the Japanese Yakuza, and he was feeding information to all the different intelligence agencies, so he'd go to Russia he had money laundering operations set up through Bulgarian banks, and Russia was in control of that through the KGB. So he sat down with the KGB heads. Then when he came to England, MI5, MI6 will be asking him, what, what's the Russians saying? But his heart and soul was with Israel. That's where his ultimate loyalty was. After himself, of course. He was, you know, this, this um, grandiose, bombastic narcissist. 
Now, Robert Maxwell, he became a liability to the intelligence agencies. I'm reading the, the book called The Assassination of Robert Maxwell right now. And they detail how the Mossad take him out and make it look like an accident. He's off his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. And this is off the Canary Islands. And he's, he's, he's found dead in the water, basically. Okay. And he's, it comes out that he's looted, you know, hundreds of millions from pension funds and stuff like that. And all these people have lost their money. So Robert Maxwell brings Epstein into the fold. And once you're into that fold, we're talking Iran-Contra. You know, people saying we don't know where Epstein's money came from. The money from these elites comes from the most profitable businesses in the world. And they're all interlinked. And I learned that because when I wrote about Barry Seal, he was a cocaine transporting pilot for the CIA. And it was drugs come up from South America on these military planes. In his case, they were going through Maine, Arkansas and other drops in Arkansas. George H.W. Bush, Oliver North were heading this scheme and Bill Clinton's governor of Arkansas was providing the state security. So it's drugs in, weapons out. That's what Maxwell was heavily involved in. He was a key broker in the Iran-Contra deal whereby Reagan was going to have him you know, release the hostages and that was boost his popularity in exchange for illegally giving Iran arms, which were financed by drug deals, CIA is bringing the drugs in, Gambino crime family, just one of the crime families, you know, helping them distribute it. So I believe once Epstein was introduced into that fold, his money would have come from laundering it, proceeds for intelligence agencies, uh, it would tap into the, you know, weapons, drugs, oil, and human trafficking. What we see with Epstein is just the tip of the iceberg. There are far bigger players than him, and right. he was sacrificed so that those players wouldn't be exposed, including the Clintons, including Leslie Wexner. So Wexner, owner of the Limited, and all Hello, of a sudden, who? you know, the Limited, the company, the Limited, okay. uh, Victoria's Secret, Victoria's Secret, the fashion show, the you know, the lingerie, right? And um, Epstein and Wexner were tight, and the properties that Epstein had, you know, that were worth multi-millions, they came from Wexner, but there's no evidence that he actually paid for any of them. And the Wexner properties in New York, it had already been fitted up with all the spy cameras before Epstein even moved in. Wexner had it all rigged up like that. So honey traps have been used for decades by the intelligence agencies. If you can entice people into your web, people as powerful and famous as Prince Andrew, and then you could get them in compromising situations. And Virginia Roberts, you know, one of the bravest victims who's just not let this lie, is completely running with it every single day. I'm in communication with her on Twitter. I'd urge really? people to go, go over on Twitter and, and retweet her stuff and offer her support because she's, she's had multiple death threats. FBI have even said that they're credible. She said that Prince Andrew not only had sex with her um, twice individually, but also on a third occasion on the Pedo Island had engaged in an orgy with her and teenagers that were underage who Epstein had procured 
from East Europe. And Epstein was joking, saying, you know, they can't even barely speak English. These are the easiest girls to get. And one of the guys he was getting them through was Jean-Luc Brunel, who also ran a modeling agency out of France, which launched some very famous models. And Epstein bragged that he slept with over a thousand of Jean-Luc Brunel's girls. Because of his connections to the government, he was fast-tracking them into the country. He could get them visas just like that. Jean-Luc Brunel gave him 12-year-old triplets for his birthday present. And he was boasting to, Epstein was boasting to Virginia about how good the oral sex was with these 12-year-old girls. So, you know, a complete depraved entity. I started writing about the war on drugs and it led to the Clintons and the Bush crime families and then on to Epstein. And it's, it's, it's a very, very dark place. Now, I've got a weekly true crime podcast on my YouTube channel. And one of the most recent guests was Prince Andrew's former Royal Protection Officer. And he was working for Prince Andrew when Ghislaine Maxwell was just waltzing into Buckingham Palace. She didn't have to go through the security protocol, didn't have to put a name in the system properly. And we saw Prince Andrew do that car crash interview on the BBC. And he's talking so polite about a manner unbecoming and a straightforward shooting weekend. But according to Paul Page, the ex-cop, you know, if guests of Andrew's were held up, Andrew would get on the phone, you know, say they didn't have ID or the the cops were trying to do the proper security procedures. Yeah. Andrew would just, just get on the phone and be like, let that fucking person through now before I fucking come down there. I'll, I'll fucking have you lose your job. Don't you know who I am? So that's the kind of character he really was. But he's not the brightest bulb. Right. <laughs> Um, not, not the brightest crayon in the box? No, I mean, <laughs> Epstein and Maxwell are at the shark level, and they've got that psychopathic, deviant level of knowledge. Andrew, I believe, was seduced into that. They wanted to get that power leverage over him, and he found it so seductive that even after Epstein had been convicted the first time around when he got his sweetheart deal right. against the wishes of the royal family Andrew went back over to Epstein's four day celebration from prison party where Prince Andrew was the guest of honour and then Andrew gets on the BBC and says he was going flying all that way to just to break up his relationship with Epstein but that BBC interview was just one big lie the whole thing even the FBI have called him out he said I'm going to cooperate with all of the law enforcement agencies. And now the FBI, all these people, all these lawyers, prosecutors are saying multiple times they've contacted the Royal uh, Buckingham Palace, the lawyers, and Andrew's not being forthcoming at all. So the whole thing was just one big whopper, that interview. But what Paul Page said was, the Royal Cop, Andrew did know that whatever he said, even if he incriminated himself, he will never spend a day in jail because the royal family are so powerful. It's one law for them and another law for the rest of the world. Anyone else would have been SWAT team raided and sent to prison and stabbed in the belly by the Aryan Brotherhood for being a chomo. Unbelievable, man. So where do you see this whole thing? What do you see becoming of the entire Epstein suicide 
Um, where do you see this ending up? Where, where do you see this being? How do you see this being viewed in 10 years from now? And also, what is the current state of the investigation if there is any sort of, if it's still an ongoing investigation? I know that you mentioned in a video that you just recently released that there was capillaries under his eyelids that they found that, were, that had burst. Um, yeah, it's the royal scandal of the century. The royal family have tried to push it out the media here by getting all the media contacts to focus on on the Megxit situation with Harry and Meghan. And they did manage to do that. It was dominating the news after Andrew dominated the news. But then when the FBI announced that Andrew wasn't cooperating, it just popped right back up to news headlines oh, here God. again. Yeah, so it's got all the hallmarks of something that's not, not, that's not going to go away. Because if, you, if there's a murder and it's solved, the public are satisfied. But look at Kennedy. Look at Princess Di. So I think 10, 20 years from now, people will still be talking about Epstein. When in the history of the MCC, the Metropolitan Correctional Center, has the, on the record been two guards ever fall asleep simultaneously since it opened in 1975? It's never, ever happened. The cameras, conveniently, the footage is not available. The only people who have been arrested are the guards. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's a classic look at the pressure that was put on his neck to, to cause the, the free fractures, the hyoid, uh, hyoid uh, broken, and like you said, the, the capillaries in the eyes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's obvious his cellmate was taken out um, they put him in with Nicholas Tartaglione, a cop turned gangster who murdered four people in a nightclub they were enticed to to do a drug deal and buried him in the garden. This guy, he could have just snapped Ep Epstein's neck with one of his hands. He he's so powerful looking. Dude was massive. <laughs> the convict code is such that if you're a gangster and you're put in a cell with a chomo, KOS kill on sight. Right. Yeah, so... I think that the suspects are Tartaglioni, even though he was taken out, could have been let back in to finish the job. Quid pro quo, he's up for the death penalty. Let's see if he gets a softer sentence. Already, the boss of that jail has been awarded, after Bill Barr said this guy should be relegated to a desk job, the boss of the jail's already got a cushy job somewhere else, so he got rewarded. So, total deep state operation. Maybe Tartaglioni went in for the quid pro quo. Maybe guards went in and did it. Maybe they you know, sent some people in um, from the intelligence community. Some hitmen dressed as guards uh, could have gone in and done it while, while they took the cameras out. And, and just the, the method of killing him um, two Tonys. We talked about two Tonys when I was writing his life story when I was in his cell. Yeah, and he, you know, he was he was talking about all these methods of murdering people and burying bodies, and that's all in his book. And I asked him, I said, "How would you kill me right now?" Just thinking he would describe it, and in a split second, he jumped up, grabbed an electrical cord got behind me, wrapped it around my neck and started to choke me out. And I, you know, I couldn't breathe and I'm starting to get a bit dizzy. And I'm like I, I, panicking. I, I tapped out. I didn't even let it go. Just like that. 
Now, there were some photos, I think 60 Minutes got access to some photos of the death scene, and there were multiple electrical cords in the cell, pictures of all this disheveled cell. So let's say Tartaglione goes in, a guard goes in, a hitman for the intelligence agency goes in, um, just get that cord wrapped around his neck, bam. If Tony's a professional killer, felt that was the most efficient way to do it, that could have been the murder weapon right there in those photos. That's crazy. I didn't realize there was an electrical cord in the actual photos of the scene. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Thank you for sharing your story. I, I'm super <laughs> grateful for you coming on here. I mean, your stories are just absolutely riveting. Not only your personal stories, but the stories that, that you've told, like of two Tonys and, and your knowledge of, of the Epstein and, and the Clintons and, and all the corruption going on in the war on drugs. is just incredible. I can't thank you enough. And where can the people listening to this on Concrete find more of your stuff online and you, you know, your links to all your social media platforms? Thanks, man. There's just tons more content on my YouTube channel, which is just under my name. I've got the weekly true crime podcast, usually two hours, where I interview ex-guards, ex-cops, ex-gangsters, experts in the Epstein case. All my books are available worldwide on Amazon, 13 books out now. And all my socials are under my name as well. And I'll, you know, I'll put some clips up on my channel, and I really appreciate um, people subscribing. It's free. And um, I hope your subscribers enjoy this content as well, Danny. I appreciate you having me on. Hell yeah, man. Thank you so much. It's been a blast.